Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The History of Europe, Key Battles podcast is now beginning to progress beyond the Middle Ages into the so-called early modern period of Europe. Of course, these terms were invented by historians and nobody was ever aware that they were living in the Middle Ages. Looking back, Europe does look very different in the early 1500s than a couple of generations before. But there was no one moment of transition from one period to another, rather a series of changes. If a historian had to pick a year for the end of the Middle Ages, they might choose 1453, the year when Constantinople fell to the Turks and also the Hundred Year War ended. Or perhaps 1492, when Columbus discovered the Americas and Granada fell to Castile and Aragon. Or maybe the start of the Reformation in 1517. An alternative might be 1477, the year of the Battle of Nancy and the fall of an independent Burgundy, the subject of today's podcast. To get the most out of the podcast, it will be helpful if you are able to refer to maps provided on the Facebook page or the podcast blog at www.historyeurope.net and so familiarise yourself with the political map of West Central Europe in the 15th century. It may also be advisable to listen first to previous podcasts on the end of the Hundred Years' War, the Battle of Castillon, parts 1 to 3. If you've already listened to those, or want to continue anyway, then let's begin. A welcome to a History of Europe, Key Battles, the Battle of Nancy, Part 1 of 3. Burgundy was only one of several Western European states that disappeared in the late 15th century under pressure from larger, more powerful neighbours. To begin today, I'd like to give a brief tour of the politics of Western Europe around the 1450s. Firstly, the Kingdom of England was in turmoil after losing nearly all its territories in France, so that by 1453 English presence on the continent was reduced to only the port city of Calais, just over the Channel. In the same year, perhaps partly triggered by news of these events, King Henry VI of England began to suffer bouts of periodic insanity. This prevented him from properly governing his kingdom and contributed to the outbreak of the War of the Roses in 1455, where the rival houses of York and Lancaster competed for the throne. Meanwhile, in France, King Charles VII, after the expulsion of the English, was able to strengthen the authority of the French crown within France. He also tried to extend his power further afield into the four corners of what is modern-day France. 
Firstly, in the northwest corner, the Dukes of Brittany, although technically vassals to the kings of France, had for centuries enjoyed de facto independence. Jumping ahead a little of today's battle, the Duchy of Brittany came to an end upon the death of the last Duke in 1488. The Duchy was inherited by his daughter Anne, but King Charles VIII of France had her existing marriage annulled and had married her himself, thus acquiring for himself the title of Duke of Brittany, ultimately helping to integrate the Duchy into the Kingdom of France. To the northeast of the Kingdom of France were a number of small states, some of which today belong to France, but others are now part of Belgium or Holland. The largest and wealthiest of these states was Flanders, which had grown prosperous on the cloth trade. To its east were numerous small states such as Brabant, Holland and Zeeland, which in the 1400s were likewise enjoying an economic boom. In this period, the region's wealth and density of population were unequalled elsewhere in Europe, except for in northern Italy. Their urban populations had a strong sense of independence and a commitment to joint decision-making, rather than submitting to a feudal overlord. Though technically subjects of the Holy Roman Emperor, they benefited from the weakness of the Empire and of the kings of France during this period. In the 1400s, however, the Dukes of Burgundy exploited the political vacuum, and after decades of political manoeuvring and military pressure, gradually acquired sovereignty over several of the smaller states, including the previously mentioned Flanders, Brabant, Holland and Zealand. In the southwest of modern-day France, the French crown was in dispute with the Kingdom of Aragon, regarding the county of Roussillon and its capital, Perpignan. And in the southeast, the region of Provence was, like Brittany, incorporated into the lands of the French crown in the 1480s. The territories ruled by the Dukes of Burgundy and the King of France had relatively straightforward political alignments under their overlords. But to the east of this area, on the western fringes of the Holy Roman Empire, the distribution of political power was more complex. In this region, describes Richard Vaughan in his book on Philip the Good of Burgundy, quote, extended a kind of Franco-German no-man's land where towns, bishops and feudal barons jostled for pockets of power and where the Emperor, the King of France and the Duke of Burgundy were rivals in the slow and intricate extension of their political influence, end quote. In this western march of the Empire, the King of France, Duke of Burgundy, and the Emperor cultivated a network of connections with the local aristocracy. In 1452, a new Emperor was crowned, the first of the Habsburgs, Frederick III. In his first years, Frederick concentrated more of his energies on reuniting the Habsburg hereditary lands of Austria than on imperial affairs. Unlike his predecessor, Sigismund, who had been hostile towards Burgundian expansion, the new emperor was more prepared to come to a settlement with the Dukes of Burgundy. In the southeast of modern-day France, between the southern shores of Lake Geneva and the Alps, is the region of Savoy. This area was long ruled by the House of Savoy, which was founded in the mid-11th century. Long before Amadeus VIII was promoted to the title of Duke of Savoy in the year 1416, his ambitious predecessors had extended their powers not only northwards up to Lake Geneva, but also southwards to Turin and Piedmont, and even to the shores of the Mediterranean at Nice. Under Amadeus VIII, Savoy had been influential and prosperous, but his death in 1451 was followed by years of crisis and decline, which his neighbours exploited to their own advantage. The Dukes of Milan to the east hoped to acquire Piedmont. Louis XI, King of France, and the Dukes of Burgundy, meanwhile hoped to bring Savoy into their own orbits of power. In 
The most dangerous of all Savoy's neighbours was the Swiss city of Bern, whose rulers from the 1460s displayed an increasing interest in interfering in Savoy's internal affairs. Savoy only succeeded in retaining its independence because the ambitions of their neighbours tended to cancel or counterbalance each other. To the north of Savoy is modern-day Switzerland. The word Swiss was only just coming into use in the 15th century to describe a collection of towns and cities nestled in the hills and valleys of the Alps. The word is derived from Schwitz, the name of one of the three original communities, or cantons, that joined to form the nucleus of the Swiss Federation at the end of the 13th century. By the 15th century, the Federation comprised eight members, including Zurich, Basel and Bern. The word Swiss, however, was still a rather loose term and could be used to include also the neighbouring allies of the official federation. In terms of a sense of identity, the people would still have considered themselves foremost as German speakers and as subjects of the empire. The members of the Swiss federation of the 15th century were dynamic and proud of their independence. They were also as expansionist as any monarch or noble of the period. The more aggressive cities, such as Bern, terrorised their neighbours with frequent raids, forcing them into dependent alliances or, if necessary, conquering them outright. Bern's expansion of its sphere of influence pushed mostly westward, since the north and east were blocked by other Swiss towns, such as Basel and Zurich. By the period of Charles the Bold, several towns, such as Solitern, Biel, Merton and Fribourg, on the border of the French-speaking world, were essentially satellites of Bern. To the west and northwest of Switzerland is the French region of Franche Comte, or the historical county of Burgundy, and to its north lay the regions of Alsace and Lorraine. Alsace is a stretch of land on the western bank of the River Rhine, historically often disputed between the French and the Germans. Today it is part of France, but in the 15th century was on the western fringes of the Holy Roman Empire. Locally, it was partitioned, jigsaw puzzle, fashioned between six or seven powers, of which one of the most powerful was the city of Strasbourg in the north, so-called Lower Alsace. Further south, the largest towns were Colmar and Mulhouse. The Duchy of Lorraine to the west of Alsace was likewise part of the Holy Roman Empire and also locally politically fragmented. Its capital, Nancy, is situated on the left bank of the river Murdita, about ten kilometres upstream from its confluence to the Moselle. Across the Alps in Italy was the powerful Duchy of Milan. There, after the last Visconti Duke died without a male heir, a condottiere or mercenary by the name of Francesco Sforza seized control of the city in 1450. Francesco went on to rule the duchy moderately and skilfully and founded a new dynasty which allied itself the Medicis of Florence. The focus of today's podcast is the Duchy of Burgundy. In this period, its duke, Philip the Good, had grand ambitions. They were twofold. Firstly, to create a unified state along the scattered territories recently acquired, and secondly, to increase the prestige of his dynasty externally. To achieve the latter, he spent lavishly on his court, which won a reputation across Europe for its splendour. Philip was also an active patron of the arts, especially manuscripts and tapestries and music. Among the most famous artists in his court was Jan van Eyck, who became known for his portraits of nobility, including of the Duke himself. Philip also worked hard to build good diplomatic relations with the leaders of the time, and succeeded in building a strong network of alliances around Europe. Perhaps his greatest wish was to raise the status of his title to that of king. 
A separate ambition, Philip held, was to travel one day on crusade to fight a holy war against the Ottoman Turks. In 1453, Philip planned to come to the aid of Constantinople, at the time besieged by the Ottoman Turks. But instead he had to postpone his eastern adventures to deal with the crisis back home, a revolt in the city of Ghent. Ghent was the richest, most populous and most powerful city in the Burgundian lands. Its citizens were proud, independent-minded, and this was not the first time they had rebelled against outside interference. The latest troubles began when Philip proposed a tax on salt, which was rejected by the city's council. Angered, Philip tried to replace opponents in the council with his own supporters. In response, the guilds proclaimed a general strike and took up arms. In April 1452, in expectation of an attack from Philip, the people of Ghent founded an army which occupied strategic towns and locations around the city. Philip himself led an army against Ghent for the next year, culminating in the Battle of Gewehr on July the 23rd, 1453. After much bloodshed, with an estimated 16,000 citizens of Ghent killed, the Duke came out victorious and finally put down the revolt. The peace terms forced upon the city was a definitive step toward decentralisation of Burgundian control. Philip had sent a clear message to the people of any other city in his lands planning a similar revolt, that he would not tolerate dissension. Despite what seems a success, at least in the short term, Richard Vaughan writes in his biography on Philip the Good that this war was a costly blunder, since it deeply antagonised the people of Flanders. He writes, quote, The first two Valais dukes of Burgundy, notably John the Fearless, had progressed towards a modus vivendi with the turbulent Flemish cities. But during the reign of Philip the Good, first Bruges and then Ghent were provoked into taking up arms against their ruler. In failing to devise a political solution to the problems her cities possessed, Philip made it probable that Flanders would never provide that firm foundation for Burgundian power, which its wealth, its early acquisition by the Valois dukes, and its culture might have led one to expect. In other words, Philip failed to realise how the townsmen of the many vibrant growing cities of Western Europe were becoming a significant new power in politics, challenging the traditional powers of the nobility and the clergy. Their increasing wealth and growing populations led to a surge in civic pride of handsome new buildings and formal bodies created to govern themselves. They were anti-feudal and highly protective of their hard-fought-for privileges. However, the freedom in which they prided themselves meant freedom from outside interference, not freedom in a modern democratic sense. Town life was controlled in minute detail by a merchant-manufacturing oligarchy with a strict hierarchy of craft and trading guilds. The labouring classes at the bottom of the hierarchy earned no more than a bare existence and enjoyed no rights of citizenship. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The Ghent Revolt coincided with the conclusion of the Hundred Years' War, whose final battle, the Battle of Castillon, happened just six days before the Battle of Guevara. At this time, there was growing tension between the King of France and the Duke of Burgundy, although for now both were occupied with separate events. Back in 1435, the two rulers had signed a peace treaty in the city of Arras, a key turning point in the Hundred Years' War. The Treaty of Arras effectively broke up the Anglo-Burgundian alliance, and so allowed Charles to devote his full attention against the English. Yet despite signing this treaty, Charles remained, in private, fervently opposed to the very existence of the Burgundian state. Despite an outward display of friendliness to Philip, behind his back he did everything in his power to undermine the duchy while stopping short of provoking outright war. In particular, Charles forged a number of alliances with Philip's opponents in efforts to undermine any opportunities for Burgundian expansion. Charles rejected all Philip's protests against French hostilities, and as his war against the English was reaching a successful conclusion, became more bold, now that any renewed Anglo-Burgundian alliance would no longer pose the same threat as before. The story of Burgundy from 1453 till 1477 would be grossly oversimplified if it was depicted as just a clash between France and Burgundy, between Charles VII and Philip the Good, and later between their two sons, Louis XI and Charles the Bold. They were the principal antagonists in the politics of West Central Europe of the time, but numerous other parties were important players, which makes the narrative more complex and difficult to summarise. Such parties included other great powers such as England and the Holy Roman Emperor, as well as a multitude of local dukes, counts and city leaders. I think it is useful to compare the European rulers of the Middle Ages with the managing directors of the 21st century. The primary goal of the latter is to increase the size of their businesses, because that is what their stakeholders demand of them, and because if they did not, then another business would take advantage and take market share from them. A European ruler would likewise be expected to increase the size of his power base, usually by acquiring new territory or perhaps also internally by giving greater cohesion to and exploiting further the resources of their lands. No European ruler in the late Middle Age could afford to neglect opportunities for territorial expansion, and many concentrated all their political energies and financial resources on this task. The only decision was in which way to do this. Powerful orders such as the Kings of France or Dukes of Burgundy would have various political situations going on at the same time, would have to learn to choose their battles carefully. It is now time to introduce the man who would be King of France in the fateful year of 1477, Louis XI. Louis was born in July 1423, at one of the lowest points in history for the French crown, when England and Burgundy controlled large areas of France, including the capital, Paris. Louis therefore spent his formative years in a period of intense warfare, when the very independence of France was in question. Slowly the forces loyal to his father, Charles VII, reconquered lost territories from the English, especially after the failed English siege of Orleans in 1429, and then the Battle of Pate in the same year. It was also a period when French nobles not infrequently fought each other, competing for power and influence. 
1440, Charles had to put down an uprising of French nobles, called by historians the Praguery. The main instigator was the Duke of Bourbon, but young Louis, then only sixteen, had also been persuaded to join in the rebellion, and afterwards was forced to beg for his father's forgiveness. Charles forgave his son, but never entirely trusted him again. As Louis grew older, he became increasingly frustrated at his father's refusal to involve him in government. With the few chances he was provided with, Louis demonstrated great intelligence and administrative skills, as well as bravery on the battlefield. The clearest example of this was his appointment to the region of Dauphiné in 1447. This province lies in south-eastern France, north of Provence and west of Savoy, with the capital of Grenoble on the upper Rhone Valley and the foothills of the Alps. It had been inherited by the King of France and was traditionally granted to the heir to the French crown, who was therefore given the title of the Dauphin. It was far enough away from Paris to prevent Louis getting too involved in royal court politics, but important enough a role to keep the restless Dauphin busy, at least for now. The historian Paul Murray Kendall, in his biography of Louis XI, says that from the moment he set foot on the soil of Dauphiné, he plunged into his little threadbare state as if it were an empire. With great skill and energy, he set about the task of bringing about law and order. He doubled the extent of its territory, gave it a cohesion it had never known, and massively improved the region's administration. For the first time in his life, the Dauphin was able to fashion a life for himself. Kendall continues... Quote, he was famous as a tireless horseman, wearing out his entourage in endless cavalcades. He ate and drank heartily. He loved to talk and also knew how to listen. He questioned everybody about everything, and he remembered the names and faces and the answers. Even the sparse records of his youth show flashes of the comedian, enacting with a reddish a repertoire of roles that half hid and half disclosed the complex, nervous, amused creature behind. He pursued experience as fire eats a dry forest, and he focused all that he learned, all his vitality and will, upon the management of men and affairs. The above passage hints at the complex character of a man who is known to history as the Universal Spider. The nickname suggests the deviousness of one who spins intricate webs of plots and conspiracies in which to entrap his enemies, but also one who is a master of building an efficient administration and network of allies, and of expanding royal power. While living in Dauphiné, Louis used the opportunity to form personal ties with neighbouring rulers such as the Swiss and Francesco Sforza, Duke of Milan. Most significantly, against the will of his father, Louis married Charlotte of Savoy, daughter of the Duke of Savoy. Charles VII, concerned that his son was building himself a strong independent power base, sent an army to compel his son to his will. In the summer of 1456, Louis, terrified of being arrested and imprisoned by his father, took flight from Dauphiné and made his way to Brussels. There he sought refuge from the man his father most disliked and feared, Philip the Good of Burgundy. Casting himself upon his uncle would enable Louis to maintain the useful fiction that he was not a fugitive, but a prospective crusader, since two years before, at the famously splendid Feast of the Pheasant, Philip and his lords had sworn to take the cross. Philip provided his refugee nephew with a handsome annual allowance, and resolutely refused to restore Louis to his father, in spite of Charles VII's repeated requests and threats. It was about this time that in England the War of the Roses broke out. 
The expulsion of the English from French domains and the periodic bouts of lunacy of King Henry VI brought two sides of the royal family, the Yorkists and Lancastrians, to armed conflict in 1455. In this year, the Yorkists captured King Henry at the Battle of St Albans, but then shortly afterwards, in the first of many twists and turns in the Civil War, Queen Margaret regained possession of her husband and the government. The Duke of York's main supporter, Richard Neville, the Earl of Warwick, and soon to be known as the Kingmaker, fled England and built the Yorkists a powerful outpost at Calais. Based in Calais for the next couple of years, Warwick went into coalition with Philip of Burgundy, both men keen on countering the alliance formed between Henry VI of England and Charles VII of France. And so it came to pass that a generation after exploiting a French civil war, the English were now in the midst of their own, and each side seeking support from their old adversaries. In June 1460, Warwick sailed from Calais back to England with some 2,000 soldiers and the good wishes of Philip. Fortunes fluctuated over the next years between the Yorkists and the Castrians until the Battle of Towton in March 1461 when the Yorkists were victorious and Edward, Duke of York, was crowned Edward IV, King of England. By the spring of 1461, tensions on the other side of the Channel had grown and threatened to break out into renewed warfare between France and Burgundy. Philip's giving of refuge to Louis and his support for the Yorkists were two of many differences between Charles VII and himself and by now Charles' fervent hostility towards Burgundy must have become apparent to Philip the Good. But the 58-year-old Charles had been gravely ill for the last two and a half years and was not expected to live much longer. The ailing king summoned Louis to him from his exile in Burgundy, but the Dauphin refused to come. In July 1461, the king's physicians concluded that Charles would not live past August. Ill and weary, the king became delirious, convinced that he was surrounded by traitors loyal only to his son. By now, another infection of the jaw caused a swelling so great that for the last week of his life, Charles was unable to swallow food or water. Although he asked the Dauphin to come to his deathbed, Louis refused, instead waiting in Burgundy for his father to die. Charles passed away on the 22nd of July, 1461, and was buried at his request beside his parents in Saint-Denis. Louis ordered a requiem mass for his father, but refused to show a grief he did not feel, and forbade his household to wear mourning. The next day he took horse with his followers to the border of France. There he met up with the Duke of Burgundy, who was busy making preparations to escort Louis to Rheims for his coronation. Richard Vaughan writes how Philip was certainly happy on the 14th of August, 1461, when he saw Louis crowned King of France. Quote, he may well have speculated, hopefully, on the possibility of a restoration of Burgundian influence in France, or at least a settlement on the many outstanding disputes between France and Burgundy. If so, he was soon disillusioned. The son who had rebelled against his father undertook now in deadly earnest to pursue his father's policy to the logical conclusion. In the long term, Louis's aims was no less than the total demolition of the Burgundian state. End quote. The impression given from Paul Kendall's biography of Louis XI, more sympathetic to the French king, is that both sides were equally responsible for the hostilities. Either way, the tensions that had bubbled under the surface ever since the Treaty of Arras of 1435 would soon break definitively out into the open, although more often by proxy wars than direct battle. In the next part, I will continue the story and tell of the last years of the independent duchy of Burgundy. I hope you can join me then.
As ever, it would be great to hear from you, either on the Facebook page, on the blog, www.historyeurope.net, or you can write directly to me at carl at historyeurope.net. My name is Carl Rylett, and you've been listening to A History of Europe, Key Battles. Thank you for listening, and speak to you again next week. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.